This is Healthcare Matters on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Healthcare Matters is a program that delves into healthcare policy and issues. The hosts are not medical clinicians and they're not able to offer advice about medical conditions or diseases. You're always encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Healthcare Matters, sponsored by Hartford Healthcare, hosted by Rebecca Stewart and Elliot Joseph. Good morning. Welcome to Healthcare Matters. This is Elliot Joseph. We're happy to be together with you today. We have an incredibly important show. Uh, We're going to lift the veil on what it takes to keep a mother safe after she gives birth. Listen carefully. This is a show that could save the life of someone you love. Every year in the United States, nearly 4 million women give birth. The vast majority without incident. But that's the good news in American medicine, because every year, roughly 50,000 of those women have complications connected to childbirth. And many don't actually recognize that something has gone wrong. And this morning, that's what we're talking about. Our experts will tell you how they are tackling these complications head on, doing everything in their power to make childbirth a safer experience for mothers, their families, and for those of us who love them. And we are passionate about that this morning. Now, having a baby, of course, is supposed to be the most amazing, joyful experience in your life. And for the large majority, it absolutely is. But sometimes we forget the toll that pregnancy takes on a body and on a woman's health. So with women getting pregnant later in life, and there are certainly a rash of other complications, obesity on the rise, it can be a dangerous recipe. So what are we doing about it? Yes, and uh, we're referencing throughout the show a uh, recent USA Today series of articles, actually over the past year, uh, where they have highlighted what is truly a startling fact in America, that the United States is actually the most dangerous place to give birth in the entire developed world. Take that in for a minute. It's amazing. It is. And our guests today actually represent two of the states in this country that are making the most progress. And uh, we will hear from one of our clinical leaders out of California. California is leading the country in providing the safest environment for birthing mothers. And we'll also have some of our very own clinical leadership from Hartford Healthcare representing Connecticut, who now comes in as fourth safest in America due to the progress that is being made in this important arena. So our guest today, uh, include the following. Uh, Dr. Beth Deckers. Beth is an OB gynae who has spearheaded this initiative at Hartford HealthCare. She's been working diligently over the past decade on this work, and she's now taking what she's learned, proven strategies to keep mothers safer, to other parts of Connecticut and across the nation to spread best practice. We're also joined this morning by Dr. Adam Borgita. Adam is the Chief of ob Gynae and Director of Women's Health at Hartford Hospital and specializes in high-risk pregnancy and maternal fetal medicine. A little bit later in the show, we are thrilled to welcome Dr. Stephen Lockhart, MD, PhD. Steve is the Chief Medical Officer for Northern California-based Sutter Health. Uh, California, as I mentioned, is the leader uh, in this initiative, and they've helped so, save so many lives, and he's going to help share his journey with us 
and the remarkable strides they've made. So we're looking forward to this important conversation. We absolutely are. And this is really about keeping women safe before, during, and after pregnancy. So this morning, we are going to begin with Dr. Beth Deckers. Uh, Elliot referenced that USA Today, a huge, pretty scary series about this. So Beth, can you sort of set the stage for us? Tell us what is happening. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Rebecca. I'm very pleased to be here. Well, one of this really has reached a crisis stage in our country. Um, every year, about 700 women die from pregnancy-related complications. And the tragedy of this is that when it's been looked at, about 60% of these uh, deaths could have been prevented um, with better, with early recognition and a standardized approach to management of obstetric emergencies. The other thing that we now know is that the postpartum period is a particularly vulnerable time for mothers, and about one out of every three pregnancy-related deaths occur anywhere from one week to one year after delivery. Remarkable. And you've been really focused on this. You're passionate about it, if you don't mind. Can you share a little, you know, you were telling me that you remember vividly when you were 12 years old and something similar happened to your mother. Absolutely. Um, When I was 12 years old, my mother uh, suffered a life-threatening postpartum hemorrhage um, that required her having an emergency hysterectomy. And that really made an impression on me at a very young age. Um, It was an incredibly scary time for our family. And um, as I got older and and went through my medical career, I, I said to myself, what would my life have been like if I had grown up without a mother? And so that's the reason that I'm so passionate about this. No child should have to grow up without a mother, and we need to uh, keep mothers and and their families together. So, Dr. Deckers, um, I'm just so curious, uh, as a professional in this field, um, how did did this happen in our country? Uh, How did we become um, the the one country that's... uh, underperformed in creating a safe environment for for birthing mothers? Well, I think there are three reasons that we're seeing this dramatic rise. Um, The first is that we are getting better at detecting and understanding what the true problem is. And that's because um, there's now a checkbox in most states on death certificates um, asking whether or not the woman who died had been pregnant um, and... uh, within or within a year of pregnancy. So we're getting better at detecting the actual problem. Um, the other issue is that we are seeing um, that many of the women entering pregnancy are um, older mothers, greater, older than 35 years old, um, and many of them are suffering from other uh, medical comorbidities, um, things like um, high blood pressure, diabetes, um, obesity, and that certainly increases someone's risk in pregnancy. And then the final thing is that, um, as we said, many of these are preventable, and um, at, at hospitals, we need to do a better job of implementing safety bundles and using a standardized approach to management, which has been shown to give the best possible outcomes. And yeah, that's... That's really interesting, and we're going to talk a little bit about each of these issues. Uh, particularly, we'll dive into the the demographics uh, of 
birthing mothers. And, and Dr. Borgita, I know you have a perspective about this. Can you give us your, your point of view? Yeah, I couldn't agree more with uh, Beth that we've seen a change in sort of the population of pregnant women in the country and particularly in Connecticut. Uh, you look at some of the issues that are affecting the whole population like obesity, heart disease, all the things that we see as patients get older, as moms get older, they have the same complications. So, you know, when you get older, there's a higher chance for diabetes and high blood pressure. As our pregnant women have gotten older, we see diabetes and high blood pressure all the time. So some of these things that we're seeing, they're not unexpected, but we have to do a better job of recognizing it, uh, knowing what our patient population is, and uh, adjusting, as Beth said, our checklist so that we can take care of uh, women who, you know, they have a right to have babies. It's the greatest thing ever. That's what we do. We just didn't do, you know, the proper job so that everyone is safe and healthy during their pregnancy. Are these after. trends in particular, the the aging, uh, the, the later age uh, deliveries of, for women, are they not as prevalent in other developed parts of the world? That's, it seems to me that they'd be experiencing something similar. Yeah, I think um, it, it probably is in, in some developed countries, but I think uh, it's very regional too. So if you go back 30 years when I first was getting into medicine, the, the population of pregnant women 35 and older was about 5% of the population of pregnant women. In Connecticut now, it's over 20%. Wow. So it's a huge change in demographics. And I think it might be more unique to the United States where women are putting off childbearing. Everyone has two you know, fa- families with uh, you know, parents with two careers. So moms are getting educated. They're doing lots of other things and then deciding later on, okay, now's the right time to, to have my family. And, uh, you know, of course, there's other complications as you get older. And you also have the issue of infertility treatments um, being much more prevalent and I'm assuming much more sophisticated than they were not long ago. Can you speak to that? Yeah, certainly. I mean, some of it's infertility and some of it is just our general health care where people who were too sick to conceive or have children in in 20 years ago, now they're healthy enough and uh, getting pregnant and having successful pregnancies, but there can be more complications. So I don't think it's the fertility treatment itself, uh, but some patients who may not have been able to conceive for other medical reasons, you know, we're seeing that. These medical miracles who have grown up and now are alive and of childbearing age. So these are part of the reasons why. Let's talk now about solutions because you've done so much research. You've looked at California where this has worked. You've brought it to Connecticut where it's making an impact. Um, Beth, let's get back to you to talk about solutions. What are we doing and what have we done over the last 10 years? Sure. Um, at Hartford Hospital, um, we recognized in, in 2012, um, we recognized an opportunity to um, better respond to, our, um, to the problem of postpartum hemorrhage. And at that time, um, the, the real uh, leader in the country was the state of California. Um, the state of California, through um, maternal mortality review, had identified that postpartum hemorrhage was a significant and very preventable cause of maternal death. So, Beth, for our listeners who are not physicians, can you break it down, like if you're talking to patients, what does that mean exactly? Um, what it means is that when a, a woman, um, after a woman gives birth, it is possible to lose a large amount of blood very quickly. And so the care team has to, first of all, recognize that the mother is losing a large amount of blood and then has to respond in a prompt fashion 
and um, manage the care um, in a very systematic way. And you tell your patients now, you were saying, listen, I sit down with each and every one to say, this is a critical time. You need to be on the lookout. Absolutely. Um, as I mentioned before, we recognize that many maternal deaths occur anywhere from one week up to one year after delivery. And so for that reason, you know, I always say to mothers as I'm discharging them home, hey, as mothers, I understand you're going to be fo- very, very focused on your baby. Um, but it's really important not to ignore symptoms in yourself because they can be important warning signs. So things like chest pain, shortness of breath, headaches that won't go away, heavy bleeding, any of those things are not uh, necessarily normal. And so women should contact their healthcare provider um, to have it evaluated. They shouldn't ignore symptoms. And that is something that I just want to remind our listeners. In fact, we did an interview as you're talking about this. In the last six months, you've created a very important checklist going through everything that you just said. We we talked with a a mother who now has a five-year-old. So it was really in the beginning stages of you delving into this and making a difference. The checklist didn't exist. Here she is. I'm just setting the stage before you hear her speak. This is a woman named Reem Noah who was very, who was wanted to talk to us and make sure that people understood the reality and the gravity that you don't necessarily pay attention to your body when you have a newborn. So looking at this checklist, she had all of the symptoms and didn't have something to bounce it off of. Let's listen. This is Reem Noah, a professional here in Connecticut, the senior vice president at Adams and Knight. Yeah. So this was about, I can't believe over five years ago um, now, I remember it, though, very, very well. I had just had my second baby. It was a C-section, delivered Kareem, left the hospital, got home. And, you know, I'd, I'd done this before. This was my second baby. And so, I, you know, I got this. But it was weird because I was feeling these symptoms. And I tell myself, this isn't postpartum depression, is it? Like, you know, this I can't breathe. Um, I had this, like, shortness of breath situation going on. I I couldn't even sleep straight. I felt like I just couldn't breathe at night. I had to sleep sitting up. Um, I felt like I heard um, like water, you know, in my lungs. But I said to myself, I would cry. It was just and I thought, well, but there was something nagging that something just wasn't right. And I remember calling my brother, who is an amazing stroke neurologist. And he was another at another um, location, another state at the time. And he told me right now, call 911 and head over to the hospital. Um, you you have to go to the hospital now. And and I said to him, I can't go to the hospital now. I can't leave um, Kareem. And I, you know, I had another daughter and I, I can't. And my husband was at work. I, I can't. I'm not just going to leave my baby at home. And he said, Reem, you need to go now. You need to go to the hospital now. Um, and honestly, if my mom wasn't home um, at the time visiting us to, to help me with the baby, I, um, I probably wouldn't have left. And I just, I don't know. Um, I don't know what a would have happened. So um, yeah, I didn't have this checklist. I just kind of, you know, went went with my went with my gut and really my brother telling me um, to go because I had access to, to medical um, expertise. But this is a great tool. Um, and I hope it can I hope this helps other um, new moms. This is a really powerful story. And listening to uh, what I assume for Reem was not a high risk pregnancy it was probably classified as a normal pregnancy. And you know, the blessing she had of having somebody in the family who had clinical expertise and family support at home. You know, most of us 
don't have either of those things. Uh, Dr. Borgita, what's what's your experience? What how do you react to to her story? Yeah, I think it really it does hit home because you think everybody's going to go home and then have no complications and no troubles. But I think uh, we're recognized recognizing this more commonly now that everybody needs to be aware not not just the patient who just had a baby but her whole family around her her husband her support system because they can recognize things that maybe they're ignoring they don't want to leave their children and uh, you know they just got home from the hospital thinking everything's fine it's interesting um the, the term now we're calling it is the fourth trimester. So everybody thinks of the first three mm. trimesters. And that's what uh, the American College of OBGYN now is publicizing. And, and really the big talk this year is about the fourth trimester and recognizing complications that can happen. Normally a woman has a baby, she sees her doctor six weeks later or a C-section two weeks later. But we can't go that long and not be in touch with our patients to know what's going on. And as you listen to Reem and hear someone, and I just think she does, it hammers at home because we've all been there. And you think, is this normal? Am I okay? What should I do? Beth, clinically, can you tell us, here's someone who had hypertension. She had had preeclampsia. It hadn't gone away. Clinically, can you tell us what's going on? Yeah. I mean, clearly she had um, significant warning um, symptoms. And the issue with preeclampsia is that patients um, can develop that in the postpartum period. Usually um, preeclampsia goes away after delivery, but not always. And so for that reason, um, patients um, need to be aware of these symptoms and need to seek care if they have symptoms. It is really impressive um, to hear her story um, and her brother's advice undoubtedly was life-saving. Yeah, one of the things uh, for myself personally, uh, I've been on a, a national crusade, much less a local one, to eliminate the word discharge from our vernacular. And, and I think this notion of fourth trimester speaks directly to it. We're trying to replace the word discharge with, the, with not only the language of transition, but also different behavior uh, post the departure from the inpatient setting. And I don't know if uh, as part of our fourth trimester uh, perspective. Is there uh, purposeful, timed uh, outreach to mothers during that period of time, or, or do we still leave it to them to come back to us? Yeah, I think it's a it's a great point, and I think uh, what what we're trying to do now is, if a patient has hypertension when they leave the hospital, we can have a nursing visit two days later to make sure that everything's going okay. Instead of waiting six weeks for the mom to come back for her routine visit, people are now routinely saying, well, come back in a week or two. We'll check your blood pressure. We'll see what's happening. So, so, And this is not just the OBGYNs. Pediatricians are seeing moms in their office, sure. so we need to get the word out to them. Or moms will come back to the emergency department, and we need to clue them into the signs and symptoms of complications that it's not necessarily something that they would normally see, but it is pregnancy-related. And as we have access to this data that tells us the story of what we're dealing with as a country, much less each individual physician practice, this notion that we talk about as healthcare professionals about bundles and protocols, uh, I I have to believe for people who are not in the business, uh, people are, what do you mean um, that you don't all do it the same way? Uh, so can you, uh, Beth, can you talk a little bit about what, what, what we've discovered about the, the variation in care and how these checklists and protocols are improving care? Absolutely. 
Um, we've recognized um, that there is considerable variation in care. And, um, and when we see variation like that, we also realize that there may be an opportunity to improve care by uh, moving a little bit more towards the middle. Um, and so, for example, in the state of California, um, the problem of postpartum hemorrhage is one that requires a very um, systematic response. And really, it's a response that occurs from the moment that the patient enters the hospital. The first thing that happens is that everyone who's caring for that patient should understand what the patient's risk factors are. And then from there, when a hemorrhage begins to occur, it's important to identify it and then have a series of steps and um, use of medications that have been shown through research and evidence to be effective for treating the problem. And that's what these bundles are about. They're evidence-based. They've been shown through research to improve outcomes. Great. It makes such a difference yeah. in the lives of the people that we serve. Now, we have a caller on the line. Jen Moeller is a perinatal safety nurse, and she joins us. This is something that you're also terribly passionate. Thank you for joining the show. This is Healthcare Matters. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Um, thank you very much for having me. Um, I'm really enjoying the conversation. Um, you know, I would just like to acknowledge uh, the nurse's role in helping to decrease maternal mortality. We talk about team-based approach, um, and as we know, our patients often see a nurse in their first encounter, whether it be um, coming in for her regular clinic visit or whether she's feeling or experiencing a problem and she comes to labor and delivery to meet the triage nurse to see if everything's okay. Um, on the day of her delivery, if she comes in, it's going to be a nurse that's going to be spending, you know, the first initial moments with her and doing her discharge teaching um, after her delivery before she, as, um, as we spoke earlier, um, about transitioning care to home. Um, you heard a little bit about the bundles, and so we've educated our nurses. And in my role as a perinatal safety nurse, I partner with Dr. Deckers and Dr. Borgida and um, our leadership team to review the bundles and to help operationalize them and bring them to the bedside caregivers so that they can do the best job that they can. Jen, I'm curious from your perspective, what do you wish that patients knew Like, what, as, you're, as they're listening? Well, I think the most important thing, you know, as nurses, um, we do, um, what would be, what is great is for patients to have realistic expectations when they come into the hospital. Um, you know, um, making sure that, you know, they have a birth plan and that they're able to verbalize what it is that they want. Because a lot of the new research coming out is that we can really impact um, maternal outcomes when we partner with the patient. So ha encourage them to speak up. And as Dr. Borgida and Dr. Deckers have spoken, we cannot emphasize enough that moms have to be aware of those danger signs because they are things that any mom, as you've experienced and Mrs. Noah described, these are things that many women can say, oh, it's just because I had a baby. Right. Of course I'm tired. Of course I have a headache. I had, a, you know, I had an epidural. I'm just going to feel this way. Um, so nurses are very um, well poised in the care continuum to be sure that the patients are made aware of these vital of these um, these warning signs, and um, you know we've even educated and partnered with our ED nurses because that's one gap that we have noticed and it's been identified across the country. When the patient comes in, making sure the, yeah, yes. make sure the patient tells the nurse. 
I just had, had a baby. baby. Yep. All right, Jen Muller, we really appreciate your call. Our perinatal safety nurse giving that nursing perspective, which is so critically important. The time is not 10.29. We have an amazing program, a great conversation. When we come back, we'll be joined by Dr. Stephen Lockout from Lockhart from Sutter Health in California. We will be right back. This is Healthcare Matters. Welcome back to Healthcare Matters. This is Elliot Joseph, and we are in the midst of an incredibly important conversation uh, with with the notion of what it keep, what it takes to keep a mother safe after she has given birth, and how do we get better at this over time? Uh, every year, as we've been talking about it in the United States, uh, over four million women give birth, and we're grateful that the vast majority of those women do it safely and with good outcomes. Uh, at the same time. Roughly 50,000 of those women experience complications. And we're talking today with some real experts leading the charge, both here in Connecticut and across the country, uh, to make things safer for, for mothers. We have Dr. Beth Deckers with us. Beth is a OBGYN physician who is spearheading this initiative across Hartford Healthcare. And uh, Dr. Adam Borgita, who is a specialist in high-risk pregnancy and maternal fetal medicine at Hartford Hospital. And joining us now on the phone uh, from California that we've been talking about for some period of time uh, this morning is Dr. Stephen Lockhart. Dr. Lockhart um, has been leading the way to keeping mothers safe after childbirth and is the chief medical officer of Sutter Health. And just as a point of reference, Sutter is a very large health system in uh, mostly Northern California with 24 hospitals. And amongst their hospitals, they provide birthing services for approximately 31,000 women a year. And just to give you a, a, a perspective on that, across all of Connecticut, there are about 36,000 births per year. So Sutter's responsible for this, for an enormous number of new babies entering this world. And I know the people of California and the folks across the country are grateful for Dr. Lockhart and his team's leadership in helping us get better at this work. Welcome to the show, Dr. Lockhart. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. So we want to get right to your journey. You and your organization have helped to save so many lives. Can you take us through the process? How did this happen? And just to, uh, to give a sense, right now, Sutter and um, California, right now, maternal morbidity. So the number of women, any any woman who dies is one too many. But right now, the numbers are down to about three per 100,000 births. In the United States, that number is so much more. It's around 23 in every 100,000 births. That is too much. And then you compare that to California. What have you done to make a difference? Well, uh, thanks for asking the question. I think we are sort of on two tracks or legs of our journey. The first is making um, maternal care safer overall. And that has really been a journey that's been, oh, uh, probably a decade and a half going on two decades long. Um, I recall coming to uh, Sutter Health about 30 years ago as a practicing anesthesiologist and caring for a lot of obstetrical patients. Um, and we have really, uh, as a system, there's our journey, then there's the national and state journey. Our journey as a system has been really about what it means to be an integrated healthcare system. And 
meaning that uh, we really want to make sure that the care that we provide at any of our hospitals, we do have 24 hospitals, 18 of them uh, do deliveries, and we want to make sure that the care in our uh, small rural hospitals or our big urban hospitals is, is equivalent. Um, and that effort was really led by um, uh, a doctor named Dr. Elliot Main uh, and uh, pulling together our obstetrical uh, leadership and our clinicians to uh, do things like look at first pregnancies and deliveries, episiotomy rates. We looked at uh, improving our use of oxytocin for uh, induction of labor. We looked at things like, um, um, obviously, our, our, our C-section rates, but also delivering ba- not delivering babies before 39 weeks of gestational age, um, and so on. So there are a number of different initiatives that we worked at over the, over the period of about 15 years to really uh, create a uh, sort of a standard work and system-wide uh, impact. Uh, but I think more importantly, as far as uh, the reason that California is doing um, uh, better, and of course we still, we still have a ways to go, as you said, one, one death is one too many, um, is actually the result of an organization uh, called the California Maternal Quality Care Collaborative, or CMQCC, which is a collaborative of all of these hospitals, essentially almost everyone who delivers uh, babies in California is a part of this collaborative, and so we have a statewide maternal data center when we do things, for example, either at Sutter when we come up with something good and unique that's helpful, or we can learn from something that someone else is doing. That is shared through the collaborative. And that's resulted, as you mentioned, in a um, decrease. Uh, what, what was happening in California was that before 2006, our uh, rates had gone up um, to... to um, I think it was 16.9 deaths per 100,000 mm. in California. And after the institution of the collaborative in 2006, it went down to 7.3 uh, in California overall. And as you mentioned, at Sutter Health, we're at three. So that was um, really an important um, thing yeah. for us to be able to collaborate. That sounds like a very important part of the story, Dr. Lockhart. Dr. Borghita, your, your perspective about this work and what's happened in Connecticut. Yeah, hi, Dr. Lockhart, Adam Borghita. I'm a chief of OB at Hartford. I'm smiling here, you can't see me, but all the things that you mentioned that you guys did in California, sort of as the leaders, we've we've adopted everything that you checked off are all the things, we have an OB quality council for our system, and we've implemented all the things that you mentioned to try and uh, improve the outcome for pregnancies. I'm, I'm most curious about, you know, as, as uh, Elliot mentioned, California is so much bigger than Connecticut. How is it that you got buy-in from from everywhere, and that you have a data collection system that's supported throughout the state of California? Well, um, I think I need to give credit where credit is due. Uh, the leader of CMQCC is that very same Dr. Elliot Main that I mentioned, who was our uh, chief of OB when I came thirty years ago, and he took on the effort. And I think the um, partly the results that we had at Center Health, but partly the force of his leadership. Uh, throughout the state um, really convinced people. And also I will say that the fact that California was getting worse between 2006, I mean, up to 2006 with that, those statistics I quoted, we were actually, you know, getting worse. We'd gone from 7 to 16 per 100,000. And I think that kind of shocked people. And everyone said this is really a collaborative, not a competitive sport. Um, we all have to come together. And... Um, 
you know, fortunately, um, I think that that was compelling. We also had some incentive from our uh, elected officials. It's one of the one of the areas where perhaps that leadership encouraged us. Um, and even now, we have uh, leadership in the California State Legislature, which is keeping a close eye on on how we're doing, particularly as it relates to health equity, which is something else I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment. We are. Um, And I I also want to point out, Dr. Locker, I know that um, Dr. Deckers is passionate, and I know she's listening in right now. And Beth, your perspective here was that, hey, take a look at this. This started in 2006, and it proves it works. Let's keep at it. Tell us your thoughts as you hear him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as I said, we we really started this journey at Hartford Hospital in um, 2012, and um, the nice thing is is that around that time is California had already um, been on this journey, and that's when they started publishing um, their experience. Um, and I think that that was a big piece of con- convincing other physicians, hospitals, and health systems uh, to do this kind of work. The other thing that Elliott Maine has spearheaded as well is um, a national effort to make these kind of changes, and that's through a program known as AIM, or the uh, Alliance for Innovation in Maternal Health, and that um, initiative is now spreading this work across the country, Um, and Connecticut will become an AIM state this fall. Uh, we also have a, a perinatal quality collaborative. Um, and as Dr. Lockhart said, um, that kind of interaction um, between physicians, hospitals, sharing best practices is how we're going to turn this around. So well, one of the things we really want to make sure to bring up, and you just referenced this, Dr. Lockhart, we, we need to talk about access to care, disparities in prenatal care and beyond. We know right now, and this was a big piece of the USA Today series that Elliot referenced earlier, right now black moms are harmed twice as often as white moms. Beth was telling me earlier that's regardless of socioeconomic status. This is four times the rate of other races. Why is this? How do we change it? Dr. Lockhart, your thoughts. Well, um, what you're alluding here to here is the uh, notion of health equity, which I think is extremely important. And at least as, as I think about it, and I think this is pretty much how all of us um, who are involved in this kind of work think about it, is health equity really is not about equality or treating everyone equally. It's about getting equal, equal outcomes and making sure that everybody has uh, the ability to accomplish the same outcomes. And um, that... There are clearly many societal factors and, uh, you know, sort of social determinants that, that bear on that. Um, but also, um, you know, our perspective, et cetera, is what, what, are, what is the role that we as provider organizations can play in trying to level that playing field in terms of outcomes? So uh, when it comes, et cetera, we've done um, some studies with about 18 different quality metrics um, across the continuum from birth to the end of life. Um, but when it comes particularly to um, maternal care, um, because we do have um, such a large database giving uh, birth to more than 30,000 uh, children a year, you know, we have a unique opportunity to really go and take a precision medicine approach and try to say wh- what are the specific uh, groups of patients. And we have urban, we have rural, we have different races and ethnicities because it is California. 
um, and then try to link that to information in our electronic health record uh, to understand what those causes are. And uh, we haven't, obviously, we don't have all the answers yet. We're still doing a, a lot of uh, research in this area. Um, but, for example, we have found at, at Sutter we've been able to um, level the playing field. All races and ethnicities get the same, um, you know, high-level results when it comes to C-sections for first-time moms, for example. The rates are similarly low across the board. Yeah, On the other hand, if you, if you look at low birth weight babies, you know, African-American women are, are, have higher rates, and we, we haven't yet figured that out. That's sort of a statewide thing, and we're kind of working again with the collaborative to try to sort of figure right. that out. So. That's a, a really important observation, and uh, I'm very sure it's not unique to California. And Dr. Borgita, can you give your perspective about this, uh, what this looks like in Connecticut? Yeah, I, th I mean, I think Connecticut has a similar experience, and uh, although our population is smaller and we probably have a different uh, diversity, we see the same things. You know, we know that black women have a higher risk for hypertension, and we know that preeclampsia and postpartum hemorrhage is more common, so we really have to uh, pay attention to those factors. Uh, one other thing that we've done in our clinic population in Hartford is we've teamed up with the Hispanic Health Council. Mm -hmm. we, we team up with them to make sure that people come in for their care and make sure they get prenatal care and then postpartum follow-up with peers and mentors that they've got in their own community. And there's also been some really interesting newer kinds of prenatal work over the last few years, group prenatal classes for the city of Hartford, which bring a bunch of women together to get this sort of sense of camaraderie, to take care of one another. They go through their prenatal classes together. It's another way to reach out into the community. Um, so all of these things important, and again, sort of red flags as we look at everything. Um, we have another caller on the line. Now, Dr. Matt Seidel has been listening for a few minutes here. It looks like we may have to ask Dr. Lockhart to call back. But Dr. Matthew Seidel has been listening all the way from Chicago. Matt, tell us your thoughts here. You've been working pretty closely as well. Hi, good morning to everyone there. So um, I just want to take a little bit different take on this. Not uh, Everything that has been said this morning is so incredibly important. Uh, but from uh, my perspective as the, the Chief Medical Officer of Women's Health Connecticut is the impact of intimate partner violence during pregnancy in the postpartum period and the fourth trimester as, as Adam has described. It is something that we don't usually think about in terms of, um, uh, of postpartum of, and maternal mortality. But actually, uh, intimate partner abuse or domestic violence, which is more commonly the term, uh, is more common than gestational diabetes. It's more common than toxemia or preeclampsia. It's, uh, uh, domestic violence is more common than breast cancer and, um, and diabetes in the non-pregnant population, and we just don't think of it. It is one of the most common causes of death during pregnancy and the postpartum period. In, uh, we have an average of about 14 homicides that we know about. So, Matt, what do, we, what do we do about that? I know that you're passionate about this. So we have formed a uh, coalition, a, a partnership with the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence. It's got to be brought up. It has to be discussed. And so we believe, and in uh, our network, every single person is asked about that at every annual visit, at every problem visit, and during every uh, trimester of pregnancy, we have to ask the question, have you been, uh, and we ask very specific questions, do you feel safe at home, do you have, feel controlled by your partner, etc. We do this 
three times during pregnancy and once during the postpartum period because the average person has to be asked seven times before they will seek help. And if they give a positive answer, we will connect them with an advocate right on the spot from the office. Yeah, these are wonderful improvements in the way care is being delivered that are addressing socioeconomic determinants of health and um, just very, very important. And I know, again, around the country, Dr. Lockhart, your experience with what Dr. Seidel is uh, talking about? Um, you know, I, I would say that um, I don't have a lot of data on on that. I just I caught the uh, sort of the end of Dr. Seidel's uh, comments on domestic violence, which I would assert are very, both very shocking and extremely important, but um, I don't know that I have data to um, mm, okay. to support that. I, what I would say is simply that, um, you know, we have programs around uh, supporting uh, women with domestic violence, for sure, and of course what we see is that that goes across all, again, socioeconomic classes, races, ethnicities, and so on, and it's that's, a, that's an area where I think that um, something like unconscious bias can come into play, uh, which we've been trying to, uh, you know, educate ourselves. We have, like, educated something like 4,000 of our managers and so forth about to be aware of because so I think tell often, us tell us a little bit about what is implicit bias? What is unconscious bias? Well, I think, and I think the relevance to Dr. Seidel's comments are, you know, having a bias that somehow that um, the way a person looks or a way a person acts or the education they have or some other factor that that um, is external somehow determines or can be used to indicate something about that person. So, you know, um, we had a case in a report that we did on our health equity work of a young black woman who was, you know, extremely well educated and all this, but she came in to one of our hospitals and had an experience where a nurse clearly, you know, was viewing her as uh, someone who was, you know, less less fortunate, uneducated, and and just because of the color of her skin, and you know, had this picture of someone that she projected onto this person, which wasn't true, and it actually affected the care that she got. I mean, I won't. We don't have time to go into the specifics, but you can imagine that that has an effect and. The point is that we all have these unconscious biases, regardless of our race or ethnicity. I'm African-American. I have mine, too. Um, and they, they are based on how I grew up and what my experiences are. And they're part of that fight-or-flight you know, baseline, uh, inherent um, um, you know, survival mechanism that we have. But it doesn't serve us well when we uh, use that to you know, determine the care of the patients that so, we are we're privileged to care for. Let me ask this question of uh, all our guests this morning. Uh, you know, we, we just the the beginning of the show that and we were talking about throughout sort of the startling notion that the United States is last in terms of safety for um, birthing mothers, uh, number one. And number two, um, there are incredible pockets of improvement that are leading this country to a, a safer birthing experience. I'd like for each of you to share your point of view quickly. Uh, what advice and counsel do you have for uh, women and their partners as uh, they are either getting prepared to give birth or they're thinking about 
um, having a baby. And we're going to start that with Dr. Matt Seidel before we say goodbye. Dr. Seidel. So I just want to say that um, domestic violence cuts across every socioeconomic status, every race, every ethnicity, and all through in, in our Connecticut and every community. And so uh, I would like to tell our fellow providers, please ask the question, nurses, doctors, everyone who touches the patient, please ask the question. And because there is help, because this is something that was totally off of our radar screen when we were starting to think about maternal mortality. Great so advice. Be, yeah. Great advice. Thank you, Dr. Seidel, for being on the show. Yeah. Dr. Lockhart, your thoughts? Um, yes, I think if I were to uh, say something to the, the, the pregnant moms who are listening or potential uh, patients that would be coming and giving birth, it would be, as Dr. Seidel said, to, 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 or I heard earlier in the program as well, speak up, uh, let, let us know what's going on, tell us about the things that we need to know, be an advocate as well, because, um, you know, there's, that's, that's, the best way in which I think we can uh, drive change is really um, through our patients coming forward and letting us know, letting us know how they feel, letting us know what they need. Um, and uh, there's no, there's no uh, shame or harm. In fact, I strongly encourage uh, you to be active and proactive and uh, make, make us work to make your birth experience better. Yeah, how do we get, I, I think that's great advice, but how do we get over the Oh, I don't want to bother the doctor. Yeah, that's uh, a great point. Syndrome. Uh, Dr. Brigitte, I see you shaking your head that's and smiling. A, that's an excellent question, yeah. and I'm, I'm more of a consultant, so I'm always telling patients when I see them in the office, you know, if you have any problems, talk to your doctor. I mean, that's what they're there for. Right. We're really available 24-7. And I think that goes back to what you had asked about what can patients do. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we talked about in our system is trying to make sure that people get the same level of care, and Dr. Lockhart mentioned that as well. But I think patients can really ask their provider and, and find out. Is the place they're going to have their baby really, we expect everything to go well, but do they really have the bundles in place to deal with any complication that may arise? That's what we're striving for. And pay attention to those checklists. Dr. Decker, I would love for you to answer Elliot's question, and then I'm going to remind folks to where to find those checklists. What are your thoughts? Absolutely. Um, I think that, um, as Dr. Lockhart said, I think it's key that, that patients ask questions and be sure to advocate. Um, the other thing is to recognize, I think, uh, the vulnerability in the postpartum period and that it's a time when families need a lot of support. Um, and so I think that um, they can continue to ask questions of their physicians. And as physicians, when patients do present with these symptoms, I think it's important um, that we tell them that they've done the right thing. And I think that's one way we'll get over the, you know, patients being afraid to call the doctor kind of thing. Um, we need to change our mindset about that for sure. Great point. I want to remind all of our listeners today, this is very important. Pay attention to your bodies. You do need to call 911 if you have chest pain, if there is shortness of breath, if there's bleeding that's not controlled. Make sure that you do that. Pay attention to your bodies during this important time. Elliot. Yeah, I think, you know, we started this show to talk about the transformation of healthcare in America. And this is this show really shines a bright light on it. Um, the idea that we're creating these systems of care uh, in which uh, clinical leadership are able to spread best practices and, and, and install 
uh, protocols that uh, represent the best way to care for patients and move the industry away from this notion of individual practice to best practice. The future for me is exciting. Uh, we have plenty of pockets of improvement. Uh, the mining of data, which we heard about earlier in the show, uh, moving to artificial intelligence and be able to be more predictive about what we can expect. The future is incredible, and I'm excited about it and want to thank everybody for joining us this morning. This has been Healthcare Matters. This has been Healthcare Matters, sponsored by Hartford Healthcare. Tune in next month as we continue to discuss the status of healthcare, determine what works and what doesn't, and work to bridge the gap. Healthcare Matters on WTIC, News Talk 1080 at WTIC.com.